So many of you already know, but go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. And we will be starting uh, or continuing where we left off last week, Luke chapter 4. And we're going to start once again in verse 16, but we're going to read the entire section. And once you are there, if you could stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he ran away. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can go ahead and be seated. You guys have had the privilege uh, of hearing the inspired and inerrant word of Almighty God. And as we read every week publicly, I just want to point out that those are not things that we do casually. We read the word of God because scripture commands us to read, study, and preach and teach the word of God. There is nothing outside of this book that we say that is profitable. And so, as Hannah was saying, if I say anything that we can't find here and that is not from God, you should do well to forget it. And I would advise you to do so. But if this is from the Lord, if this is the Word of God, then you would be careful and wise to pay attention. Not because I'm saying it, but because God says it. Last week, we started in this passage, and we talked about how the truth was proclaimed in Nazareth. The truth was proclaimed. And this week, we're going to look at the second half of the series of events in this text, and we're going to see how the truth is rejected. And that is the title of our study tonight, The Truth Rejected. And so to get us back up to speed from last week, I just want to remind you of where we've come from. That's why we started in verse 16 again. So, so far, remember, Jesus comes to Nazareth, the town where he was raised and where he grew up while he was a child. The context then is his hometown, the synagogue where people are probably most familiar with him, the synagogue where people know him and are familiar with his works and with his teachings. And it was his custom to regularly go up there. That's the setting. He goes to a Jewish synagogue. And then we saw the content that he teaches. He teaches about proclaiming liberty, being the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah, what he prophesied in Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. 
And then we saw, to close out last week, the claim that Jesus makes. And we want to take some time to start off there with the claim that he makes. The claim, we see that in verse 21. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I want you to pay attention to not only the claim that he makes, but also who he makes that claim to. Who he makes that claim to. The people who he's talking to are the most devout, pious, steadfast, faithful Jewish people in Judea. They are from Nazareth. They faithfully attend the synagogue week after week. They're familiar with Jesus. Likely they were friends of Mary and Joseph, his parents. They know him. They know the Torah. They know the law. They faithfully go week after week after week. And not only that, but they are Jewish. They're not Hellenistic Jews. They haven't sold out to the Roman Empire. They're still in Nazareth. They haven't gone to the big Roman cities to go and make their trade happen. And this is the synagogue of people who Jesus makes this claim to. And that content is very important because who he preaches to sets us up for a kind of expectation about what the response is to be like. But despite what he sets these people up as, we notice that their rejection of him is unfitting of the kind of claim that he makes, the kind of person that he is, and the kind of people that they ought to be. Because if anyone was going to receive Jesus, it ought to be these people. If anyone was going to accept him and believe in the words that he said, believe that he is the prophet to come, it ought to have been these people, right? They had the most contact time with Jesus. They watched him grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. They watched him interact with all of his siblings. They grew up with him. And yet these people who are supposed to be most set up to accept Jesus, they know the scrolls, they know the prophecies. These are the people who end up not accepting Jesus. So it's important not only that he makes this claim, but who he makes this claim to. This reminds us of John chapter 8, verse 33, where Jesus is interacting with, uh, with the Jewish people. And he tells them that they are slaves. And they say, how can you say that we are slaves? For we are children of Abraham. You see, the Jewish people at this time, it's commonly believed that they didn't believe that they needed to be saved from their sins. They believed that by their Jewishness, they could be saved from their sins. And that doesn't mean by their ethnicity, they, they have to obey a certain amount of codes, but they believe by obeying these codes, they don't really need to repent and believe because they're Jewish and they follow the law and they were circumcised and they adhere to the Torah and they go to the synagogue and they memorize these scriptures and they obey the law to the best of their abilities and God is gracious, so he will forgive them. And so they say, we're not captives because we are children of Abraham. And that's a common prevailing thought in the Jewish culture. So Jesus makes this claim to the Jewish people and we see the series of events that begins to unfold from there. So the second thing I want you to see in the text tonight is the confusion that is brought on, the confusion. And you'll see this in verse 22 by the response of the group. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? So remember, Jesus makes this claim. He's speaking to the people. And then they marvel at the things that he says. They marvel at his exposition. But when it comes time for that claim and for their response, their, their rebuttal is something of a question with they, what they know to be the answer. They ask this question in such a way where you're expecting that they know the answer. They're not asking it because they're unsure. They're asking it because they're trying to make him address their concerns. Is this not Joseph's son? When Matthew records this same event, they say, isn't this Mary's son? And don't we know his brothers and his sisters and his family? The point being, there's much uproar in the crowd and all of it's centered around the idea that we know this guy. 
So how can he claim to be the Messiah? Now, to understand why that's confusing, you need to understand something about the time that has elapsed between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because in that time, the Jewish rabbis are still teaching and preaching out of their Old Testament scriptures. And so you have writings that come about during this time period of these conglomerated teachings of the rabbis. And one of those teachings is that the Messiah, contrary to what we see in Isaiah and the other prophecies, the Messiah Messiah will not be born of a virgin, but rather he will appear almost out of thin air. And so you won't know where he's coming from. So if you see a Messiah and you know his origin, you can dismiss that guy because he's not the Messiah. If you want a cross-reference for that, you can look at John chapter 7, verse 27, where they reject the notion of him being the Messiah because they say we know who his parents are. We know where he's from. So he can't be the Messiah. And what you see there is the Jewish people substituting out the knowledge of Scripture for the knowledge of what their particular group teaches about Scripture. If they would have examined the claims of the text for themselves, they would have known that that's not taught anywhere in the Old Testament, but rather than obeying the teachings of God, as Jesus often accuses the Pharisees, they are adherents to the teachings of men, which means they obey the religious tradition of their group rather than examining the scripture and how it claims to speak. Isaiah 53 verse three says it best. It says, we esteemed him not. We did not know who he was. We did not notice him. No one took notice of him. Isaiah 53 clearly points to the fact that the Messiah would be present, would be there, but would be overlooked for some reason. And when we come to the New Testament, we see the reason he's overlooked is because the religious tradition of his day skipped over teaching about the Messiah and created these fables or these myths about what to expect when the Messiah came. So they ask, is the question, is this not Joseph's son? And the implication is, if this is Joseph's son, he cannot be the Messiah. Therefore, he's lying about his previous claim. And Jesus notices this confusion that they have. He notices this questioning that's going on in their head. And so then I want you to see the third thing that Jesus does, the third point in this text. I want you to see the cross-reference, the cross-reference that Jesus makes to prove his point about his claim. You'll see in verse 23, he says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Now, before we move on to the whole rebuttal that he goes through, I want to take each of these phrases in turn. The quote, physician, heal yourself, is found nowhere really in Scripture. It's probably a common proverb taught at that time, like a common wisdom idea. In fact, if you were to look at the Greek, this actually says this parable was said, physician, heal yourself. The word parable there being used for a short bit of wisdom that is taught through this phrase. And this creates much problems for us because that quote, physician, heal yourself, seems to have nothing to do with what Jesus says next, where he says that what I did at Capernaum, you want me to do here in my hometown as well. And the question is, why do they say physician, heal yourself, if they're not asking him to heal himself? Why are they quoting this? Or why does he perceive them as quoting this? And then he says that the reason they would quote that is because they want him to do miracles. Well, if you want to understand what this proverb meant in full, You have to understand that they actually never let go of this saying for his whole earthly ministry. And in fact, the last time they say this quotation, we see it in Luke 23, 35, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and they say, if you're the Messiah, save yourself. And the point being, the Messiah should be capable of supernatural works. And it would be very logical that he could, at the snap of his fingers and at his own will, use his power as he pleased. So therefore, if he is the Messiah, 
He should be able to do whatever he wants to do, up to the point of even healing himself. And so when they quote this proverb, they're testing or questioning his ability to do the miraculous. And they're questioning it because they're saying, although we've heard about it in Capernaum, you need to be able to do it here as well. You need to be able to do that here as well. Now, before we move on from this, I just want to point out, Luke references several times in his gospel where he says that Jesus is able to perceive the thoughts of people without them saying those things. He's able to perceive the thoughts. You can see that in Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 9, and Luke chapter 11. All of those places you see Jesus perceiving and then refuting an argument without it actually being stated out loud. And he's doing that kind of dynamic here. That's, by the way, a reference to Jesus' divinity because a normal human should not be capable of something like that. But Jesus can perceive the thoughts of man and he knows what's in their hearts. And so he sees and he interacts with their thoughts, that quote, physician, heal yourself. And we know, by the way, based on their response after this, that this is an accurate assessment of what they're thinking. Because they don't question his claim, they are going to question his references. So he says, physician, heal yourself. We have heard what you did at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. And I want to examine that claim for a second. Because the implication there is if he were to do what he did in Capernaum, that would be sufficient evidence for them to believe. That's what it sounds like, right? If this is true, you say, okay, we get the claim that you said, but you know your offspring or your, your beginning is suspect because we know where you're from. Why don't you settle the dispute that we've kind of come to now? And why don't you go ahead and do miraculous works? That'll settle it. And if you know your gospel accounts, you know that there are instances and there are times when Jesus does do the miraculous, and it is not, for those same hard-hearted people, proof positive that he is the Messiah. I want to look at two such instances in the Gospels. First, I want to go to Matthew chapter 12. So if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to be in verse 38 of Matthew chapter 12. This is Jesus on a separate day interacting with the scribes and the Pharisees. He's just finished teaching them about a series of parables. He's healed a man. He's forgiven his sins. And they're interacting back and forth with him. And they say, it says in verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. It seems innocent enough, right? Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the belly three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus here quoting, saying, they're so wicked, so rebellious, he's not going to show them a sign. Now this is interesting because the scribes and Pharisees here seem, seem honest to us. They seem earnest in their desire to see a sign. But to understand why Jesus doesn't do this, we need to understand that Jesus knows these people better than we know these people. So I want to show you another cross-reference that we can look to to understand what's actually going on in their hearts. And to do that, let's go to the other gospel, John chapter 11, verse 47. John chapter 11 and verse 47. By the way, in context, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the grave. Verse 45, I'm going to start there. 
It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So Jesus performs a sign, some believe. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, that's the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the high council, they gathered and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. But if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And now this is interesting because as you see this text, what you're seeing is, although they request a sign in Matthew's gospel, when they see those same signs, same group of people, Pharisees, high council, when they see those signs, instead of accepting them for face value, they seek to dismiss them and to dispose of them. So they plot to kill Jesus. As a matter of fact, later in John's gospel, he talks about how they try to kill Lazarus as well, because Lazarus is now a walking testimony to the fact that Jesus can do these miracles. So here, when it says that they are requesting to see signs and Jesus rejects showing them signs, you shouldn't read that as Jesus was being stubborn or incomplete in his presentation of his uh, messiahship. He is being faithful to teach them what is true, and he knows them better than we know them, and he knows who needs to see a sign and who doesn't to be convinced. And in this case, he uses his judgment and chooses not to show them a sign. Instead of that, he's going to go ahead and challenge directly them who are now rejecting him. And we see here now the cross-references of the series of cross-references that he uses. And he starts it out in verse 24 by saying, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So that's his thesis statement, right? No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And the next two cross-references he's going to use are going to support this claim, that no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And he starts off by going straight to the Old Testament and going straight to the historical books. Verse 25, but in truth, I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Now you have to understand that in order to get at what Jesus is getting at, we need to be familiar with our Old Testament. So this is evidence for you that you should know the Old Testament well because so far, even in the first four chapters of the Gospel of Luke, we've quoted the Old Testament, we've referenced Old Testament prophecies, we've made one-liner references to Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. Now we're quoting large expositions of Old Testament Scripture. And Luke, even though he's a Gentile writer writing to other Gentiles, he doesn't see the Old Testament as something worth dismissing for the Messiah. You cannot understand who Jesus is unless you understand the Old Testament context out of which he is expected to come. That goes for Jews and Gentiles alike. So we, although we are thousands of years removed from the Old Testament time period, we need to know our Old Testament. Because if we don't, we won't understand what's being said here. So if we want to understand this, let me quickly summarize for you this series of accounts. Elijah is a prophet to the nation of Israel. Elijah is a prophet under the time of a king whose name is Ahab. Ahab is classified as the most wicked king whose wickedness outseated the wickedness of all the other kings in the land of Israel. Ahab has a wife whose name is Jezebel. He married a non-Jewish woman and she leads him astray with false, prophet, with false prophets and he's worshiping Baal. Baal, the very God who Moses warns the people about and says, don't intermarry because of their false gods. So Ahab doesn't listen, marries Jezebel. Jezebel leads him astray 
Baal worship never thrived in Israel like it did when Ahab was king. And Elijah is prophet in this context. And under the rebellion of Ahab and the rebellion of Jezebel, God supernaturally shuts up the heavens and prevents rain, causing a famine. And for three years, everyone's hurting. The widows, the rich, the poor, everyone is hurting. And Elijah, the prophet who can do something about this, the prophet to Israel who's preached to Ahab, telling him to repent, who's preached to all the other Jewish people, rather than during that time period being sent to Israel to once again preach repentance, he goes to Zarephath. And not only to Zarephath, he goes to Sidon. Now to understand why that's significant, Jezebel is from Sidon. Jezebel, the wicked wife of the wicked king, that's her hometown. So it's not a Jewish country, it's Gentile territory, and it's Gentile territory associated with the very queen who has led astray the king of Israel. And Elijah goes there to a widow, and she faithfully accepts his message, and he delivers relief to her. He goes to a woman who's a widow in this land. Okay, so that's the first set of cross-references. Now the second cross-reference is to Elisha. In verse 27, we see that there are many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now that's a shorter set of cross-references, but Elisha follows Elijah. So he's the prophet who is almost Elijah's junior. He's trained by Elijah, and then he takes over after Elijah passes away. And we see that Elisha is responsible for the same people, for the same kind of ministry, in their same rebellion. But now the people of Israel are in a slightly different situation. They're under the oppression of the Syrians. And the Syrians beat them very badly. Actually, Naaman, the general, beats the people of Israel. But then during his later periods of life, Naaman, who's the general over the Syrian army, he develops leprosy, a very contagious disease, as we said earlier. And Naaman has leprosy, he can't be healed. And one of his Jewish servant girls, he enslaved a Jewish woman, and she tells him about this prophet that he can go see for healing. So he goes to this prophet, and he goes and seeks healing, and the prophet tells him to wash in the Jordan River, and at first he laughs, but he's so desperate that he does it anyway. He's so desperate he's willing to, as a military general, strip himself down, go into the Jordan, and listen to this obscure Jewish prophet. He humbles himself and does it, and he's healed. And here's the point. Elisha is available for everybody. He's available to the Jews, and he's available to the Gentiles. It's not like he's got a line outside his house waiting for healing. But there are many lepers in Israel. None of them are going to see Elisha. But this Syrian general, this religious terrorist over the people of Israel, will go see the Israelite prophet. And he will accept the teachings of the Israelite prophet. And now you're seeing why Jesus is cross-referencing himself to these two other prophets. Jesus compares his prophetic ministry to Elijah and to Elisha. And the point is this, if you reject me, I'll go to the Gentiles. If you reject me, the people who I'm sent to, by the way, he's saying he's sent to them. If you reject me, just know that that is not going to stop my plan from going forward. Instead, it's just not going to go to your benefit. It's going to go to the non-Jewish Gentiles. And they're the ones who are going to benefit from my ministry. That's a warning, by the way. He's saying, you have a choice. Accept me, that's great. But if you don't, don't expect it to be just yours and yours only. It's going to go out away from you, and it's going to go to the Gentile people. 
Now, if you were to read this account of Jesus' rejection in Nazareth in any of the other Gospels, these two cross-references you won't find. And the reason is because Luke is a Gentile writing to a Gentile, trying to tell this other Gentile about the fact that the reason the Gentiles benefit from the Gospel is because of Jewish rejection of the Gospel. Paul makes the same argument in the middle of Romans where he says that if the Jewish rejection leads to life, how much more will their acceptance be for the Gentiles? How much better would that be? But they both ground the Jewish advancement of the gospel in, or the Gentile advancement of the gospel in Jewish unbelief. And that's a really key thing for us to understand. So Jesus says that he is like these other two prophets. He gives two cross-references to support his claim. And at the conclusion of this, right, these faithful Jewish people who study the Torah, who know these stories, what do you think they do? If they know the stories, if they understand what he's saying, they might be wise to learn from his cross-reference, but instead, we see their hardness of heart on display. Instead of this leading to a repentance, we see that this leads to the fourth point of tonight, which is the conflict that we see between Jesus and the people of the synagogue. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill to which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. The reason the Jewish people do this, the reason they take him to the edge of the hill, is because they're going to throw him off the cliff. And this starts up in verse 28. We see that they hear these things, they process them. And by the way, they don't misunderstand what he's saying. They know exactly what he's getting at. And they respond with wrath. That word wrath is interesting. Usually when wrath is used, it's used in reference to God judging people. Very few times in scripture, you'll find the word wrath being used in reference to people's response to one another. This is a visceral rejection of the teachings of Jesus. Now we have to ask a question before we go into this story any deeper, which is, is this a strange scenario that is present? Is this just this synagogue in this town that happens to reject Jesus in this way? Well, unfortunately, That's not the case. Unfortunately, we see this actually consistently throughout the New Testament. So I want to take us to a few places where we can find these teachings. First, I want you to go to John chapter 1, and we're going to be in verse 11. John chapter 1, verse 11. John here, writing in his opening chapter of his gospel about Jesus, about his ministry, about his mission, says these words starting in chapter, or sorry, verse 11 of chapter 1. He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John prefaces his entire gospel account by summarizing Jesus' ministry in this way. Jesus came to his people. He came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came on the mission that God sent him to do. But his own did not receive him. His own people rejected him. And their rejection leads to the opening wide of the options of the gospel. But to all who do receive him, to all who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. The rejection of the Jewish people is not bad for the rest of the world. The rejection of the Jewish people is the foundation upon which the rest of the gospel goes forth. 
The gospel is offered to the Jews first, but when they reject it, everyone else gets the option. And that's important because for a long time in the history of the church, the Jewish people believed that they were it. And that the way to become a Christian was to become a Jew. The way to follow Messiah was to follow Jewish codes, customs, and laws. But this makes it abundantly clear that Jewishness is not what makes for faithfulness. Following Jesus and trusting in his sacrifice is what makes for the right to become a child of God. To receive the Messiah is to be a son of God. That's John saying he comes to his own and his own did not receive him. The next place I want us to look is Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 and verse 35. Here is Paul preaching to the Gentiles, or sorry, rather, Peter preaching to the Gentiles. And he says these words in reference to the gospel going forth. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him, who does what is right, is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are all witnesses of what he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him and after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter, summarizing Jesus' ministry, says it this way. It says, Jesus came, he came in power, everyone saw him, he ministered in the area of Judea and Jerusalem. They decide to crucify him, Jesus, God raises him from the grave, and he goes forth with the gospel and with power anyway. Now, it's not just that, but it's also the case that when the gospel goes forth and the Jewish people realize the gospel is not exclusively for them, their initial acceptance becomes rejection. And we'll see this in two places in Acts. The first one is Acts 13. So just two chapters over, Acts 13. I'm going to read from verse 46. Paul is preaching to the Jewish people. The Jewish people receive and accept his teaching. And we see in verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word, be, the word of God be spoken first to you. He's now speaking to the Jews. It's being spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The Jews initially accept the gospel in this account. And then when they realize the Gentiles are getting in on the goods as well, they decide that they don't want any part of this gospel account, especially not if it's for the Gentile people. And so they reject it. And Paul calls them out and says, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. It is your rejection that has left you in this location. 
And the last one I want us to look at is Acts 22. This is the last cross-reference here. Acts 22, verses 21 and 22. To give you the context here, Paul preaching a sermon to a hostile crowd. Pretty typical for Paul's ministry. Pretty par for the course. And he goes and he's preaching, he's preaching, he's telling about his personal story, his personal testimony, he's telling about how the gospel goes forth, how the gospel is free. And he starts in verse 20 by saying this. He said, And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now it's at this moment that Paul gets cut off in his sermon. And in verse 22 it says, Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they start throwing off their cloaks, getting ready to stone him as they stoned Stephen. And so what you get with these series of cross-references that we've just looked at is a consistent testimony in Scripture. And the pattern is something like this. The Gospel goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, right? Romans 1, 16 and 17, this is the power of the God, the, the gospel is the power of God that goes forth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And the reason that's important is because God is not going to leave his chosen people on par with everybody else. He goes first and foremost to the Jews. And that's important for us to understand. He goes to the Jewish people, the people who have his teachings. And then when they reject him, he goes out to all the Gentiles. There's many parables about this, such as there's a rich man who has a wedding feast, and he invites many people to this feast and all of his rich friends decide they can't go. They opt out. They decide they don't want any part. And the servants come back to him and say, all of these people have bailed out on this feast. He says, no problem. Go out to the highways and the byways. Get the poor people. Get the people who aren't even dressed for the feast and bring them in to celebrate with me. And that's in reference, by the way, to you and me, the poor people who have not been entrusted with God's teachings. But instead, we have the benefit and the overflow of his love and his mercy onto us. So the Jewish people reject Jesus, and they do this consistently, not just in Jesus' ministry, but even after he comes up from the grave and resurrects, they continue to reject him. As Paul and Peter and all of the New Testament authors preach and teach these words, there is a consistent Jewish rejection of the Messiah on several grounds, but one of them, and the most offensive, is typically the fact that he goes not only to the Jews, but he's also open to the Gentiles. And that's an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing that the Jewish people had hardened their hearts to such a point where God's love was not wide enough for any ethnicity. It was only wide enough for a Jew of Jews. And so the way to be saved in their mind is to become more and more Jewish. That makes you more and more safe. But Jesus says instead, my salvation goes to anyone who will receive me. And it is the scandal of the grace and the openness of the gospel that causes them to reject him. Now I say all that, and I wanted to phrase earlier who he preaches this message to. Right? He's preaching it to the people of the synagogue, the faithful attenders. And I want to point out this thing, which is that in today's age, in today's world, the people who grow up in church are most like these Jewish people. They are the ones who are most likely to reject Jesus and his gospel because of the scandal which it presents. And the scandal is something like this. We grow up in church. We study God's law. We follow it. We faithfully attend Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We're righteous, you know, we tithe, we do all the things we're supposed to do. And then we hear that the gospel is also available to the person who threw their life away for 30 years and now can come back. And that is what gets church people upset. 
That is the very thing that makes people angry at God because how could God accept these people into the fellowship as well? And that's interesting because we, in accepting the gospel, have with religious perversion done the exact same thing that the Jewish people do in their intertestamental period. In that period of time between the last prophet and Jesus' arrival, they have built up this religious system that's so grotesque with its perversions that they can't even see the Messiah when he's in their face. And that's true of the church. That's true of the church. In 2,000 years of church history, there are some places, there are some communions that have built up so much doctrine and theology around what it means to live the Christian life and to be a good person that we can't even recognize the fact that Jesus, in his preaching to the Jewish people, says, I've not come for the religiously upright. I've come for the poor. I've come to proclaim good news to those not who are free, but who are captive. I've come to the people who can't see and are blind. I've come to release the people who are oppressed. And all of those categories, church people don't think these apply to them. We don't think that applies to us. We think that there is sin out there. We think that some people struggle with blindness and not seeing God. But you know, since we've been growing up, we know the Bible. We know God. We get it. We know his teachings. Let's move on to something else. And we don't pause to meditate on the fact that even though we've grown up in church, that we've studied and maybe memorized books of the Bible, that we know core doctrines and we can repeat them, we think that the more we know those things, the more those things saved us. Just like the Jewish people thought that the more Jewish they were, the more safe they were from the day of judgment. And it is no different. Different context, different people group, but no different in terms of function. It's the same kind of perversion that leads us today into the same place as the Jewish people were. And James, aware of the fact that the early church is kind of growing into this way, writes in his epistle, in James chapter 4, verse 6, that he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That Jesus' very mission is to oppose people who try to prop themselves up and say that we can earn our salvation before God. And rather than giving grace to those people, he says, you have to humble yourself before I give grace. And that's a good word for us today. That's a good thing for us to remind ourselves of. Because we are constantly drifting in that kind of direction. If we are in the church, if we exist in a church for any amount of time, the greatest temptation is to think that we no longer are in need of the grace of God because we've been so sanctified and so made holy that now it's our job to preach the gospel to other people, but it's no longer for us in our daily walk and our daily lives. We no longer need to confess sin because we only commit you know, small, acceptable sins. But instead, the gospel is just as much for us as it is for everybody else. And we would do well to remember that truth. And so we find in their rejection of Jesus something else that's true, which is that this is to fulfill, initially, the prophecy that Simeon had way back in chapter 2. He says Jesus comes, and he comes to the Jewish people, and in Luke chapter 2, verse 34 and 35, we see that he says, He is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is the dividing line of the Jewish nation. He comes, and although a many, great many number of Jewish people appear to be faithful in this moment, when he comes, he divides the faithful from the unfaithful, those who are actually willing to humble themselves from those who aren't. And that is true of the gospel as well. In every single community that it's ever gone into, you can all appear safe from the outside. But when Jesus is presented and when the gospel is presented, that's what divides and cuts the hypocrites from those who are truly willing to humble themselves and accept him as their Lord. John MacArthur says it this way. He says that the truth of a sinner's condition is always the least acceptable to those who are religious hypocrites. 
That is the people who are in most danger of missing the message. It's not the people who are out sinning, throwing their lives away. Those people are the safest because as soon as they hear the gospel, they know they need it, they know it applies to them, and they know what they need to do. But religious hypocrites create all kinds of categories to escape the repentance of sin. And so, the Jewish people find that the very person who this synagogue is meant to teach them about, they carry him up and they cast him out of the synagogue. They decide that the Jesus that showed up in front of them, they didn't like so much. He's not like the one they were expecting to come by. And so they pick him up and they carry him out of the synagogue. And they carry him out to the edge of the cliff with the intent of killing him. And as the Mishnah says, the Mishnah, by the way, is an uh, is a first century document that tells us about how the Jewish people carried out the practice of their traditions. In the Mishnah, it says this. It says that the only proper way to stone someone is by throwing them off of a cliff. It says that if you want the best technique for stoning a blasphemer, if you want the best technique for killing someone who's going to blaspheme or sin against God, the only real proper way to do it is not to pick up stones and throw them. The best way, if you really want the best way, throw them off of a cliff. We see that here the Jewish people have said, you know what, we're not going to settle for anything less we're going to go with the best way to stone this guy. We're going to take him to the edge of the cliff, and we're going to throw him down. That's how we're going to stone him. And so they identified Jesus' testimony about himself as blasphemy against God, which is the same thing that he is ultimately found guilty of on the cross. And it's not that they would just stone him and leave him. Likely, they would have stoned him, taken up his body, and hung it on a wooden stake. Because in Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, it says, Cursed is a man who is hung on a tree. And it is under their will that they're trying to kill Jesus at their time to make him cursed, to despise him, and to say that we reject him from being the Messiah. And that's interesting how when they realize that their synagogue, which is set up to receive the Messiah, they get the Messiah, he's not who they expect, instead of adjusting their doctrine and adjusting their teaching to accept this Messiah, they decide, you know what, we're going to keep our synagogue, we're going to keep all that we have here, we're just going to get rid of you, we don't like that so much. And there's a great number of people who have grown up in the church, who have grown up with a certain conception of what Jesus looked like. Maybe you've heard it from some people. Maybe you've heard it from a pastor. Maybe you've heard it taught and preached regularly. Maybe it's the generally accepted consensus of your community. And when the real Jesus, when you open up the pages of Scripture and you see the real Jesus, the one who is accepting of sinners and who also commands morality, the one who's not just lovey-dovey but also a fierce warrior who comes to judge sinners, when you see that Jesus... Rather than addressing your doctrinal categories, what we are tempted to do is to say, ah, don't like that so much. Let me get rid of him, but I'm going to keep my church stuff. I'm going to keep my religion and my doctrine and all the stuff that I already had. That was good. The religion will save me. I don't need this Jesus guy. And we're tempted to throw him out and keep our distortion of what he is like. It's very similar to what they do here. They burn with wrath. They take him up, and their desire is to stone him. And that then takes us to the final point, the final climax of our time here which is we see so far, I'm just, I'll just review the points. We've seen the claim. We've seen the confusion that that brought. We've seen the cross-reference that he cites. We've seen the conflict that produced. And now we're going to see the cliff. And the reason we're going to take a look at the cliff is because verse 30 provides us with some very interesting uh, vagueness. So their intent is to kill him. They take him to the edge of the cliff. And it says, but passing through their midst, he went away. And Luke in typical Lukean fashion, as we've seen many other times, with a great amount of understatement, teaches us about a prophetic thing that has just happened. The very sign that they asked Jesus to do, he does. He does a sign. 
he saves himself from this crowd of people and he literally just passes through their midst. And you could try to explain this away. You could say, you know, they got confused in the, in the crowd and he, he disguised himself as one of them and snuck away. But they knew who this guy was. They carried him out. They took him to the cliff. And so if you're trying to find a natural way to explain this away, to try to find a natural cause for this, you would be hard-pressed to try to dismiss this one. Instead, what I think is most likely happening here is Luke is highlighting two things. He's highlighting, one, the fact that Jesus does something miraculous, even though they accuse him of not being able to do those things. He does that. He just does it to escape their condemnation of him. The other thing is in this account, remember, we're still in Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, Satan tempts Jesus and says, throw yourself off the cliff to try to see if God will deliver you because you know the Holy One has to make it a certain distance. He has a purpose. And so God won't let anything bad happen to you. And Satan tempts Jesus to put the Lord his God to the test. And Jesus says, no, I don't need to create an artificial environment for salvation. I trust God. And Jesus' trust of God ends up working out because here, Jesus is actually in danger. He's actually about to be stoned. And the Holy Spirit delivers him. And God is true to the scripture that Satan quoted earlier. He saves Jesus from being killed at an unopportune time. And so Luke is setting up both close proximity context to show us how God can deliver Jesus, and he's showing the hypocrisy of these people trying to kill Jesus and him using a miracle to escape their grasp. And there's a third thing that's at play here, which is this kind of broad, general, vague question. Why does Jesus escape? Not how does he escape, right? We've already established that's likely a supernatural thing that happened. But why does he escape? Why does he not die in this moment, right? He's preached the gospel. He said he's done all these things to fulfill what's in their hearing. Why does he escape this attempted execution? There's many ways to try to approach answering that kind of a question. But there's particularly one that I find as significant, which is that you can see several times in the gospel of John, several other times in the gospel of Luke, that the reason Jesus escapes is because it says something along the lines of, because it was not yet his time, or the hour was not yet. It says that up until the point where, in Luke's account, he is delivered over, betrayed by Judas, and he says, oh, right now, you're going to get me. When I was in your synagogues preaching and teaching, you wouldn't come for me. But now is the hour of darkness. Now is when you come. And he's identifying something there, which is this, which is that no person can die before their time. Jesus can't die before his time. God will not allow it. In his providence, he declared that Jesus is going to die at this moment in history according to this set of events and circumstances under the free will of these people who are going to come crucify him. And anything before that moment is unfit, and he will be delivered from those things. Whether that be by natural or supernatural cause, God's providence moves in a variety of ways. And here, Jesus escapes, and he goes away. And later, we see him escaping again in Luke chapter 7. And you'll see him escape again and again in the Gospel of John. And the reason is because none of that was his time. God is preserving him and protecting him until the moment at which he is to be liberated to be crucified on the cross. And that is the moment at which God has declared Jesus to die. And no moment before that point in history is fitting for the death of Jesus. But God's providence isn't only for the big events in history. God's providence extends throughout all of your and our lives. Which means that when Jesus had not yet completed the work set before him, he couldn't die. He had to go forth and do the things that the Lord said he was to do. And he was not going to die before his time. 
And that same thing is true in God's providence of you and of me as we live our lives. God's providence extends into every single aspect of the human condition, which means as we go forth, as we live, there is no point in worrying, as Jesus said about where your next meal comes from or the day you will die, because anxiousness is for nothing, but trust the Lord your God who will provide. He provides for the birds. He dresses the daisies and the lilies of the field. How much more will he provide for you? He says, don't be anxious about anything, but trust in God. God's providence extends to the point where Jesus says that not even a hair on your head will be scratched. He says you could maybe die a physical death, but not a hair on your head will be scratched because you will be raised once again. God's providence extends so far that even a death, which is the worst thing that this world can do to you, you are yet protected. But the point remains that no person dies before their time. In the book of Job, it says that God is so providential over all of creation that he declares the end from the beginning of your and my life. Moses says that teach, teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Meaning God knows the number of our days. We need him to teach those to us so we could be wise with how we use the time, with how we use our gifts and our abilities and our resources. And we shouldn't live as though we are going to live forever. We shouldn't invest in this world. We should profit our time, use our resources, spend our wealth for the glory of the king. He tells a story uh, in his lifetime, Jesus does, about a man who is set, he assembles all these resources. And he does so where all his storehouses are full. And he says, you know what? I have a solution. I'm going to break down these storehouses. I'm going to build more storehouses. And in between the breaking down of the old and the building up of the new, the Lord condemns this man and says, fool, tonight your soul is required of you. And this is what happens when we get caught up in the rat race of building up our wealth, building up our success, building up our own empires, absent of the fact that God has higher purposes for our lives. And we would be wise to live in such a way where we are constantly comfortable with the idea of dying. And that's no small point. And I'm not saying we should desire to die. What I'm saying is we should be comfortable with the idea of dying because God has ordained it. God has ordained that his people be the most comfortable with death of any other people. It makes sense for people who don't believe in the afterlife, who think this life is all that there is, to be so terrified of death because death exemplifies the end for them. But for Christians, Paul writes and teaches us that death is but the beginning, the releasing of the old, the taking on of the glorified state, shedding the old body and taking on the new, that we will be one with Christ, that we will finally be glorified. The very groaning and birth pains that we experience in our life will finally be realized. And so we would be wise to become comfortable with that. In fact, it is Paul's comfort with death that makes him such a bold gospel witness. He's got nothing to lose. He's willing to die. It's Jesus' comfort with God's providence that allows him to face off against Satan, preach boldly, knowing that if he dies, it was his time. And if not, it wasn't his time, and the Lord will keep him and preserve him until it is his time. And we should be wise to release those kinds of things from our control. Because the reality is they are not in our control. And we, as Christians, should exemplify this more than any other group. So as we kind of bring our time to a close in our study of this text, I want to reflect on one major through line in this text that we saw both last week and this week, which is this idea that Jesus comes to the people who are most willing to accept him or most likely to accept him. And when he makes the claim of Messiahship, he makes the claim of Lordship, they reject his claim. And I said last week, and I asked that same question, which is, how do you answer his claim? Do you agree with his assessment of Isaiah 61? Do you agree with his subsequent testimony and exposition of uh, Elijah and Elisha? 
and his application of those texts. Because if you do, you need to be wise to accept his lordship over your life. If you don't, if you reject him, that's fine. That puts you in the same category as all these other people who try to reject the God who shows himself to them and instead hold on to their construct of what God is supposed to look like. And you and I would be wise when we are considering these things not to very quickly dismiss this. And I want to say this carefully to you because I know many of you grew up in the church. We should not be too careful to dismiss these claims, let them pass over our heart and not consider them. But consider the fact that the answer to this question is the most important answer that you will ever have in your life. And if you've answered this question before and you've thought through this, I want to have you ponder this once again, which is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus comes to die for our sins and he comes to raise together with new life all of his people. And you and I are called to die to self and live to Christ. So if there's an area in your life where you're not doing that, you've instead built up a religious system that allows you to escape the commands that Jesus has for you, you need to tear that down and let Jesus put his lordship on your life. If you're allowing for sin to exist in a current location in your life, you need to confess your sin and take it to God because he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you've never accepted this news before, you thought you have, or maybe you've created systems and barriers around yourself saying that you know theology, you know doctrine, you don't need the gospel, I want you to carefully consider these claims because the Jewish people reject Jesus and burn in hell forever for the fact that they do. And they are the ones who are most likely to accept him. They know the Old Testament better than we do. They know the Old Testament better than anyone at their time did. And they reject the Messiah who that Old Testament speaks about. So you and I knowing doctrine and knowing theology does not save us. The only thing that can save is Jesus and his atoning death on our behalf. If you have not had that, you have nothing. No matter how smart you are, no matter how religious you are, no matter how holy you live your life, how much you donate to charity, how much sacrificial you give, no matter how nice you are, you have nothing. So consider the pondering claim of the gospel. If you have Jesus, you have everything. And if you don't, you have nothing. Let's pray. Father God, we want to come before you tonight glorifying your name for the fact that you have sent your son into this world to become sin for us, to take on sin, so that we could be sons and daughters of the king. You send Jesus to the people who you prepared for thousands of years to accept him, only to find that they have rejected him and his claims. Lord, I pray that you would make us sensitive, bend our hearts to your will, make us careful and make us cautious when considering these claims, Lord. I pray that each and every one of us would examine our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would penetrate, that your word would penetrate, and that we would consider the claims of the text. Not because they are man's words or man's teachings, Lord, but because they're your word. And Lord, when we've considered these claims, I pray that the most fitting response would be realized, which is worship of the King. So Lord, I pray that you would lead our hearts to worship, soothe ourselves to accepting the truth of the gospel. Allow us to be poor. Allow us to be blind so that we can recognize our blindness and be liberated from our oppression. Lord, we ask all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.